We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. David, welcome to Age of Miracles. Thank you for having me. So we're going to start you out with uh, our traditional opening question, which is, what do you think the pie of energy sources looks like in the U.S. in the year 2050? Yep. Uh, so we think about this a lot, actually. Um, you can look at how power is uh, power sources are growing in, in the U.S. Uh, renewables are increasing, more solar, more wind. I love that. It's really great. And there are places, however, where we're... We're starting to cap some of those out, actually, and putting in less solar. Um, and, you know, I'm up in Washington State where we put in a lot of hydro throughout the last century and now don't really put any more. But, but fossil fuels have continued to grow. So um, I think I, I believe renewables will continue to add more market share. And I think that's really great. But I'm, I'm also concerned, and it's why we founded Helion, that we need something else. We need something that's going to replace the fossil fuels that we're continuing to grow when really a lot of us believe you should be replacing those. Um, and so by 2050, we better have fusion on the grid. Um, there'll probably be multiple players in fusion as well as, and other uh, you know, renewable and carbon-free power sources that are all over in the United States in different locations. Right. Fantastic. Well, David, I get to ask the more softball question after Packies, which is, what's your background? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into fusion? Yep. Great. Thank you. Um, so, so my background, um, I got into science and engineering, wanting to solve really hard problems. And I, you know, as as most kids in high school, you know, you're going into undergrad and you're saying, great, I'm going to go solve the biggest problem in the world. And I want to go learn how to do that and what that means. To me, what I saw that is I saw energy. I saw, you know, wars fought over oil and things and said, how, how do we go out and solve that? Um, and you look in the world and you see, you know, uh, energy density and how you make electricity in the universe. Most of the power is made from fusion. Um, and if you look at other other sources of energy, uh, literally joules per cubic cubic meter or joules per kilogram of fuel, right? Nuclear power in all of the forms is right there and, and seems so obvious. So I got into fusion, spent a lot of years learning fusion, and then discovered like a lot of people in fusion that it's so far away, it's so many decades away and the technologies were so massive and expensive that it wasn't going to happen in my lifetime. And I'm a, I'm a builder. I wanted to get my hands on those machines. Uh, so I pivoted, worked on space propulsion for a while, uh, building plasma thrusters, Hall, Hall effect thrusters, some of the things used in Starlink today um, to actually go build spacecraft. And it wasn't until I found some of the technologies that Helion uses that I said, wow, we actually have a chance to do this in my lifetime. I want to go do this and I want to put all in on it. Um, and then I went to actually go build those machines, get the wrenches out and actually help build them. That's amazing. Maybe a segue there. Can you tell us a little bit about Helion Energy? Yeah. So uh, Helion, we do fusion. Uh, we've done fusion a long time. And our goal is to do fusion in a way that's different than other people. Our goal is to take lightweight isotopes of hydrogen and helium, fuse them together under intense pressure and form heavier atoms. 
and release a tremendous amount of energy, but we don't want to release heat energy. We want electricity. And so our goal is to do fusion in a way where we can directly harness the electricity from that fusion reaction as electrons and get it out on the grid as soon as possible. So there's a whole bunch that goes into there. Uh, our systems are pulsed and electromagnetic, but really always the focus is how do we get electricity out of fusion as fast and efficiently, as efficiently as possible. What's the what's the answer on that one? We had a, a really interesting uh, episode where we talked to people who were, you know, in favor of solar, in favor of other things, but particularly the solar people were like, yeah, the way we do fission in particular is like kind of caveman ukabuga, where like heat something up, make steam, turn a turbine. Obviously, like being able to just kind of generate electricity uh, directly is is great. Like, what does that take to do? Yeah, it, it takes a, a level of technology before you it actually can happen. So this is this is something I think about a lot in that the first cars were electric cars. In the 1800s, there were these these electric cars in New York. They were a commercial product, um, but they the batteries didn't exist, the motors didn't exist, the, elect, the transistor didn't yet exist. And so they couldn't actually make that small niche product into a widespread car. And then gasoline engines took over and we had 100 years of gasoline engines. And we're only now at the place where we have the power electronics that are efficient. We have regenerative braking and electric uh, regenerative braking. We have lithium batteries. Finally, now the electric car makes sense. And so if I was doing fusion in the 1950s, I'd be doing thermal fusion too. I'd be using what the, the energy conversion that we could do then, even though fusion makes a, a, a charged particles and electrons already, but I'd be using those, those technologies. So it's taken modern high voltage power electronics, fiber optics, gigahertz speed computing before we can really, you do fusion in the way that harnesses the electricity directly. Can you walk us through the design of Helion's fusion generator? Yep. Um, so we've spent a number of years building prototypes to get to where we are today. Uh, the earliest prototypes were funded by the Department of Energy, and then we graduated as they got bigger and started to make more energy um, to privately funded and, and venture capital. But, they, but the, the design we have today uh, works like this. On either end, we inject our fusion fuel, deuterium and helium-3, a rare isotope of helium-3. Deuterium, which is a heavy hydrogen found in all water. Um, and then we ionize it. We superheat it into a plasma, heating it in our formation sections. We heat it over about 3 million degrees just to get the reaction started. We then, using pulsed magnets, accelerate it into a central compression. Think of piston. And then in that central compression area, we then squeeze it as fast as possible. In less than a thousandth of a second, we squeeze it to a thousand atmospheres where fusion starts to happen. And once fusion starts to happen, it gets hot enough over 100 million degrees fusion starts to happen, and then it pushes back on that magnetic field. And it's now the same, actually same physics that happens in the regenerative braking in an electric car. We can then recover that electricity right back out of the reaction, um, expanding it, cooling it, exhausting it, waiting for the next cycle, puffing in the fuel and repeating it and running that. The goal is to run that over once a second and, and that process repeatedly. What are the the trade-offs that you're you're making. I mean, like we talked to a bunch of fusion companies, everybody's making trade-offs. This seems like a, a you know interesting approach kind of combining the best of uh, MCF and ICF, but what are the trade-offs that you're making to get that to happen? Yeah, I, I think you summarized that exactly right. The, the goal is to take the the best of magnetic confinement, which is that keeps that, that 100 million degree fuel from touching the wall, because you don't want that hot fuel to ever touch the wall 
and the best of inertial confinement, which is don't hold on to it forever. Nature is unstable and doesn't like that. Instead, squeeze it and get to fusion as fast as possible. Um, and then adds that third that third one that most people aren't doing, which is directly extract that electricity. Um, the trade-off of it is the big trade-off is that all this has to happen fast. So it's all pulsed. That's the inertial part. Um, the beauty is you get to do it fast. The trade-off is you have to, which means now you need you need uh, triggering systems that respond in nanoseconds, in billionths of a second. Um, technology didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and you need massive pulse power systems, big high voltage electronics. Uh, and so that's that that's the big trade-off there. So we have to design and run these big um, power electronics. In some way, Helion is more an electronics company than it is a fusion company. And that that's where a lot of our technology and our, our team focus on is those big power electronics. Um, so that that's one of the big trade-offs we do um, in, in those systems. So yeah, I think that those those are probably the two I would I would focus on. Speaking of different approaches, we also in this um, podcast have been covering fission reactors, mm, and mm -hmm. in fission reactors, you also see a lot of different you know reactor design choices between different types of approaches in fission. Is that a decent analogy to make to um, the different approaches we're seeing in fusion as well, and the and the trade off and decision making that goes into that? I think so, um, in that also in fusion, you have uh, much like in, in the fission landscape, you have a lot of different scales. Because we do these pulse systems, our focus is building systems that are smaller, um, 50 megawatts versus uh, the big scientific programs are five gigawatt scale. So many orders of magnitude smaller in scale. Um, and, we, and we focus on different approaches of harnessing the electricity, as well as maybe different um, business cases. Where are you going to site these? What are you going to use them for? And at Helion, we're focused on right now our first customer, Microsoft. Can we build fusion for data centers? And that means fundamentally electricity. Thanks for listening so far. Hang on. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. We are living living in the future. And speaking of living in the future, Helium Three. Um, I, I watch for all mankind, and I don't know if yep. you watched watched the show, but like the the boon that you get from going to the moon is you get all this Helium Three, and there's not a ton of it on Earth. How are you sourcing Helium Three? Is that another like kind of trade off that you make? How do you how do you land on Helium Three? Yeah, the. Um... I love for for all mankind. Um, I do say that if you need to start your business by going to the moon, um, you you probably have a, a, a rough business model ahead of you uh, and a rough road ahead of you, um, as maybe was seen in the TV show. But um, for for Helion, in fact, what we named the company after the nucleus of a Helium three is called a Helion. Um, 
the helium three fuel is one of the older fuels actually and in the old the old the uh, the brilliant scientists that did a lot of the early work in fusion recognize helium three would be a really great fuel because you take a deuterium and a helium three and when you fuse it it forms a helium four regular old balloon helium and a proton but all charged particles all electricity all trapped in the magnetic field um two challenges one just like you pointed out there isn't a lot of helium-3 on earth so how are you going to even get helium-3 to test it how are you going to and then how are you going to generate it in your system um and the other is that it requires higher temperatures to operate so both of those are two are two negatives that you have to overcome um the first one we solved with um uh we patented this but we solved this by essentially the high efficiency this energy recovery what it really lets you do is do fusion a lot cheaper and this is the, the thing that we got really excited about you take two deuteriums not a deuterium and a helium three but two deuterium atoms two deuterons they're called you fuse them together and they make helium three in gas form so if you have fusion already then you can make helium three to do helium three fusion but the key to that unlocking that is having really efficient fusion and really efficiently putting electricity in and recovering it out and if you're not doing that process it's hard to make helium-3 and then it's hard to burn the helium-3 to make to make electricity and so it was a little chicken and egg problem that required modern high-speed transistors and fiber optics to unlock that that part awesome yeah. you um you'd mentioned microsoft earlier perhaps we can mm -hmm. take a pivot there that was really exciting news for anyone following along with Fusion. Um, you know, plan to deliver in 2028, really fast timelines. What will it take between now and then to get there? Yeah, our focus at Helion has always been, a lot of us at Helion came out of some of the scientific and academic programs uh, where we were focused on discovering physics and doing new diagnostics and learning what we could about Fusion, but not delivering a product. Uh, when we spun off Helion, our goal was to make electricity on the grid as soon as possible. Even if sometimes it's not as fun, even if it's sometimes it's not as elegant, what shortcuts can you make to move faster? And so things we really do, and that's part of been the mantra of Helion, is how do we iterate really quickly? Build now, we're building our seventh prototype for Helion. How do we actually get electrons demonstrated and on the grid as fast as possible and engineer systems that are easy to make? Um, and so that that has been the mantra as as we've built all of these prototypes over the years. And we've worked with Microsoft actually now since 2015. So so seven or eight years we've been working with them and they've, they've come along on several of our prototypes on the journey of, of the evolution of us hitting our milestones to actually deliver these things. Um, and so that so we've been working with them for a long time on get them used to fusion as well as working with them on what are, what does customer need what is electricity for a data center what are their requirements should you put it next to the data center should you put it on the grid there's all kinds of really interesting questions that they could answer for us so we've been working together over the years to, to sort of right size fusion um, and that has helped us land on 50 megawatt scale systems as the as the baseline scale systems because that's a good scale for their data centers as well um, and so that we've been working together on, on those over the years it's great to have a partner like them um, and um, and it's a lot of the focus of the business of how can we iterate quickly and 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 get it out there and I'm happy to talk more about some of the ways we do that yeah, I mean, I would love to, it's a little off script, but, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of skeptics. Like there's everybody else saying we're doing this in the 2030s and then you're saying we're doing it in 2028. What 
do you think is their best argument against it happening? And then what do you think they miss? A, a lot of it comes back to looking at how modern hardware technology companies operate. Actually, it's less on the physics and more on how, how are you building a company? Um, think about the SpaceX's and the Teslas of the world and, 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 and many others, but a lot of the, the modern aerospace is a good example of can you build and test as fast as possible and iterate? And where while in January, we were running our sixth generation system while physically building the seventh generation system and engineering the eighth generation system and doing that all at the same time. That's how you speed up the process. And so our first peer reviewed published, we did lots of thermonuclear fusion happened in 2011 on a small scale system funded by the Department of Energy. Um, and since then we've now built four more systems, iterating on that, increasing the yield, increasing the neutron output, increasing the fusion reaction rate, um, uh, published uh, a, about a year, a year ago that we had been the first ones to do deuterium and helium-3 fusion at all. In bulk fusion, we were the first ones to do that, we think, ever. Um, and then also that we, had, we were the first private company to hit 100 million degrees, that operating temperature for fusion, that key temperature. Um, and so we've set those milestones and those metrics all along. But a lot of that comes back to the philosophy, philosophy of how can you build fast? Is that diagnostic going to take you four years to build? Well, it's too long. We're not going to build that diagnostic, even though it's the best one. Is there a cheaper diagnostic that's faster that I could build in six months? That's the one I'm going to pick. Um, and so, and we keep that at every stage, even though sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's, it's a bit chaotic to have all of those parallel things happening all at once. Cool. So you talked about landing at 50 megawatts as your as a size that works well for your customer. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about the trade-offs for for size of fusion reactors. You know, again, going back to the fission analogy here, there's trade-offs in terms of economies of scale, but perhaps economies from production lines and things like that, depending on if you're going large or small. Um, curious to get your take on that for fusion reactors in general, or maybe specifically for what you guys are building. Yep, absolutely. Uh, the physics is all it is all very similar, um, and it all comes to surface to volume. You have a volume that the reactions are happening in. Um, the the if you increase the radius or increase the size, you get volume cubed. You get a lot more reactions for a given amount of hardware or surface or even capital investment. Fusion works the same way. Um, combustion works the same way. Fission works the same way. Um, and so you get economies of scale to do that as you as you increase in power. Um, and then also when you're running thermal systems and doing thermal conversion, where you're using the heat to make electricity, there's some very strong scalings there around much more power. Um, and so, so that applies to Helion too, that as we build larger and larger individual systems, and right now we don't know a physics reason why we can't build them much, much larger than we do, um, the cost per unit might go down in theory. But to, to your point, Julia, and I think this is perfect, is production also matters is that uh, if you have to go build a boutique uh, uh, reactor or build boutique power plant in a, in a faraway place one time, it's very expensive. But if you can build a gigafactory that's mass producing these um, and then delivering them, well, you, you, you probably, there's, a, there's an optimal curve there where you have a physics cost and, and an engineering cost and you have a production cost. And we think that 50, maybe up to 100 megawatts, but say 50 at the ideal case is probably the right size. A good example for this is actually SpaceX has, has shown this in a lot of ways, right? That they built small rockets that you can put on a train and deliver and mass produce them in California um, and can do it really cheaply. But building big giant rockets one at a time 
um, out in Texas, that's hard and a lot harder to do. And so our focus is how can we mass produce generators, deliver them, get them on site and start making electricity with them. Later, later we'll talk about the big ones. We can do that later. Thanks for listening so far. Hang on, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. So you also announced the the 500 megawatt uh, deal with, with Nucor. Is that just stacking 10 generators? And if so, what does that look like? Uh, are they on top of each other? Are they in a big circle? Like, what, is, what does this all look like? Yeah. Uh, so it's a super good question. I, what we announced with Nucor is an energy development agreement. Um, and so with Microsoft, it's a PPA. We're going to go build a power plant that generates electricity. With Nucor, that's a bigger step. And so what we're working with them is what do they really need as a customer and what do we, how are we going to deliver that? So baseline is a collection of 50 megawatt units, but, but maybe what we're investigating, can we go bigger right now and still keep those economies of scale? Um, is that 100? Is that 250? I don't know that we know the answer to that yet. Um, and so a lot of that will be depend on what they need as a customer and where they want to put it. So this is the other interesting thing that I think that's particularly exciting around Nucor is that what they want is uh, power what's called behind the meter at the actual factory itself. So not on the grid, not interfacing with the grid or requiring maybe some of the regulatory concerns or the interface concerns of the grid, but right there on the facility. And so now you're actually directly for them powering the, the electric smelters that are so efficient at making steel, but require a tremendous amount of electricity. And But it will require electricity in, in periods where they're like, they're doing the heating and then there's other periods where they don't need so much of it. And so that's what we're working on there is how do we dial up and down the power as they need it um, and do that most effectively. And so exactly where that balance is, I, I can't tell you exactly where it is yet, but we're working hard to make sure we can figure out where that is and works best for them too. You mentioned so, that. Oh, go ahead. Yes, Becky, just, just one follow up to that one, which is yeah. how difficult is it to, to dial up and down the power infusion? Yeah, so uh, there's like a theory and a reality version of this. There's real engineering and there's the paper engineering. Um, on paper, for a pulsed fusion system, where we're in between, the pulses last about one thousandth of a second, but we run it one, once a second. So there's literally 999 milliseconds sitting around that we can do, we, we're waiting. And so we can't adjust that repetition rate where we, and we've done this ourselves dynamically on small scale systems showing we can go from a repetition rate of once, at, once, every, once every few minutes all the way up to uh, in our small systems over a hundred times a second and vary all the way through there. Um, uh, however, in reality, when you're building big systems, things like thermal shock and structural loading, some of those things start to come into effect. Um, so right now, we believe we could dial from on the order of a few percent operation up to that 100 percent or maybe a little past operation pretty quickly, as in seconds of operation, but all the way to zero. That's hard. That's really hard. And we don't know how to do that one yet. You're talking a little bit about simulation and modeling here. Uh, one topic that Packing I've been thinking a lot about is the why now for fusion and how much of that um, is because of the enablement you get to be able to have tools, software tools, but maybe other things um, that allow uh, this progress to be made on Fusion at the moment. Can you comment a little bit about what, what some of those enablers are that have been helping push the whole industry forward right now? Yeah, there's a number of the hardware uh, tools, the hardware advancements that we've talked about with Pulse Power Electronics and um, high-speed fiber optics that allow us to trigger these systems. But on the software side, there's also been some really interesting things. Um, computationally, one of the challenge that the earliest 
researchers that tried these pulsed magnetic approaches had was that you have these pulsed coils that all have to fire in sequence very, very efficiently and know and be able to detect and calibrate to what the other operate other systems are operating. And what that means is if you have to actually turn on a magnetic field to, to pulse and compress this, this plasma in thousandths of a second, it must respond in millionths of a second. And it must be able to detect what's happening in billionths of a second, nanoseconds. Uh, when I started my career, that was almost impossible. But now you can literally go buy a, you know, a 10, 10 gigabit fiber optic network card or a one gigahertz FPGA programmable logic off the shelf. And there are little teeny chips that live on the machine right now that detect, see how everybody's operating and then continue operating. So that, that's been totally enabling. Um, and also on the simulation side, we can uh, predict a lot of, not all of, the simulations aren't perfect yet, but we can predict a lot of the operation of these in our design phase. And so we can we have full simulations of the machine that, that predict within 10% how they're gonna operate. And then we can use those simulations to go design a machine. We still have to go build the hardware though and then test it and then feed that back into the codes. And it's incredible. How, how much of the software that you guys use today is built in-house versus something that exists off the shelf? Yeah, it's a good question. So on the plasma physics side, that, that code has been developed in-house, that advanced plasma physics code. Um, and what's also interesting is that when we started running at Helion, it ran on big clusters, uh, still on premises, but big clusters. And now our scientists and engineers actually run them on their laptops. So it's been pretty, pretty amazing to watch that, that evolution. Um, and so that's, that's the, the main design plasma physics code, but way more codes we use. So on the structural side, the pulsed mechanical structural codes, also those are off the shelf, but again, those are advanced where even when I started my career, you couldn't simulate the structural response of a pulsed electromagnet, but now you can't off the shelf and it's pretty straightforward. Um, those still run on big computers. And um, uh, same thing on the power electronics. We have you know uh, tens of thousands of circuits all running. Simulating that is pretty hard too, but really important um, how they they couple and work together. And so those those are all and those are off the shelf codes as well. And so the um and and, and that just continues. We're continuing to develop new codes. We uh, uh, announced we're working with Princeton to develop a new um, simulation code that's even more advanced than what we use now. That should be able to be higher accuracy and, and predict more of what's happening after fusion begins and the fusion the fusion particles. How are you tracking progress internally at, at Helion? Like what are the, the important things? Obviously getting each one of the prototypes to work uh, sounds like a big one, but what are the like the main metrics that you have on a dashboard? You know, I mean, one thing that's nice about being uh, iterative hardware focused, our goal is to build hardware as fast as possible, is that tracking it's pretty easy. Um, I think we've even had some websites, some uh, videos on our website about you know time lapse of construction happening, and so it's it's literally when a system turns on, um, when it when when it actually gets in, when the hardware is in the door, when it gets assembled, and when it turns on. Um, we actually just uh, tweeted around making our first in one of our plasma, our newest full-scale plasma injector, for the first time turning on full-scale plasmas um, for that that test injector for Polaris, our seventh generation system. And so that's another like boom, quick milestone. And then we track the operational parameters. How hot is it? How long does it last? Um, how much energy does it produce? And so we track those. Um, and we're already planning on doing upgrades of that system um, to get it even at higher temperatures. Maybe we one? talk a little about financing yeah. next. Um, mm. 
tell us about the journey, uh, the financing journey for something that is so capitally intensive and, and maybe things that were surprising or unexpected along the way. Yeah, that that's a good question. And, uh, and I have in some ways a unique vision of this that I have seen in my career. Um, I took a, a, a stint working for the Air Force Research Labs building plasma propulsion systems, a lot of the same physics as fusion, but towards making thrusters for, for spacecraft and space travel. Um, and one thing I learned there was the life cycle of research projects and R&D and how you have an early stage basic idea on the napkin, and then you have the first prototype, and then you have the, the prototype that's being in situ and doing the thing it really needs to do. And then you have the final deliverable commercial product that's all over the world. Um, and you can track cost with those pretty accurately. There's a lot of good models of if I have, if it takes this amount of money to demonstrate my back of the envelope, I know much how much the commercial product's going to cost. Um, and it's really fascinating. And what I and a lot of that's been borne out um, at Helion. So our focus is how can we continue to do uh, fusion as cheap as possible early? Because I know it's just going to cost more as we go. Um, so we and we're getting to be cheap and move fast. Um, but then that ties to capital. So early at Helion, our earliest research was funded by the Department of Energy. And then as we graduated from really basic science programs that were very, very high risk, and to be honest, a lot of them didn't work. Um, we tried a lot of things early that I'm glad we could do it where we we're exploring scientific principles rather than committing to a product at that point, because we would have been wrong. Um, and then we graduated to one that's doing fusion. It's repeated. We understand it. We're stepping stone um, to RPE. And I, I give uh, RPE, which is the Department of Energy's Advanced Research Projects Agency, um, to prove even higher power and higher fidelity. And at that point, we said, this is what we think the product looks like enough for us to go raise venture capital and start to frankly sell parts of the company to venture to to investors to go raise more money and move and scale faster and eventually we're now generating electricity we've shown now commercial viability of that product now not just we know what it looks like but it's viable and now we should be able to go out and raise private equity and other lower risk but larger amounts of source. And maybe there's an IPO in there that's around the phase that, that maybe you would do that after you've demonstrated really your commercial viability. Um, and then um, and, and, and then and later, you're actually fielding power plants. And at that point, venture capital and those kinds of investments probably don't make sense. And you're all private equity. You're doing you're doing grants and loans and all kinds of things to, to build a power plant, get it online and make electricity. And that that full life cycle and scale and in risk is something that I think all entrepreneurs should be thinking about um, and and where you are on that that risk and scale question. Um, one of the things and this wasn't in the script either, but that when you bring up kind of making the trade of speed and, you know, we'll make we'll make decisions that are fast, even if they're not like the platonic ideal of what this should look like. Is that something that over time you plan on, like, you know, once you're once you're on the grid or behind the meter or whatever, you'll go back and kind of fix some of that technical debt in future projects? Or do you think that, like, actually, it's totally fine and will be competitive in the market with the those trade-offs that you made? Um, I think what I have learned, and I'm not sure I knew this when we got started, but what I've learned is that the what you learn in each iteration is more than you would have learned if you kept optimizing. Yeah, and so iterating that quickly is 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 more powerful. You will learn those things. For instance, I can give you a very specific example. Um, 
in uh, early at Helion, we said, this is what we think a 50 megawatt system should look like. And we could go raise a large amount of money and go try to build that thing. Um, instead, what we did is we raised a smaller amount of money and built in, uh, smaller systems that were stepping stones. Um, and we learned things along the way. And, and, and if we would have gone out to make that one big jump, I can actually tell you we would have been wrong. There were things we missed, we did not know. And it took those iterations to go quickly, build it, do fusion, measure fusion reactions, and be like, wow, actually, that's not a good way to do it. These, these are three electronic different configurations we could do. This is another diagnostic we stumbled upon that's actually cheaper and faster. Let's go build that one. This is a technique of measuring. I talked about the high-speed measuring of how these reactions are happening. That, that we discovered along the way. And so those iterations, we've discovered them over the years, and I think there's a lot of power to that. Um, so my, my confidence is, yes, we'll, we'll get generation one out there making electricity and won't be optimized, but that's okay because generation two is already in the works. You hear so much about how, just from anyone working in hard tech, about how much is learned upon actually demonstrating something, prototyping something that is missed if you're just sticking to your simulations and you know what, what you're doing on your computer. Can you talk a little bit more about why that is? Like, what's what's the discrepancy? Maybe maybe you have an example you can share, hmm. or like for for the non hardware hard tech engineers out there, like what the heck is going on? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a there's a there's a bunch. I'm trying to think of what's the best example of this because there's so many. Um, I pointed to um, the control and monitoring. Actually, something that you think about fusion, you think about these these thousand atmosphere um, reactions, these high voltages, these big magnetic fields, all the things that that fusion is steeped in. But but actually, some of the hardest parts of it is the little control electronics um, in that what we found was that, here's an example. Um, we have uh, uh, magnetic fields, two magnetic field coils next to each other. And if they fire together, like your simulation shows, they always fire together because you say, I'm gonna trigger them on this time. They work just perfectly in the simulation. Great, you generate a magnetic field, the plasma squeezes, fusion happens, energy is recovered, every, everybody wins, it's, it's great. But what happens when one fires a little bit early? Okay, one fires a little bit early, and now it over-squeezes part of the plasma, and the other plasma under-squeezes and expands out. And then, and now it transfers energy to this other coil. This other coil suddenly has too much energy, and now maybe there's electrical issues, or the plasma touches the wall, or all of these other things that are non-ideal. Um, and so being able to dynamically monitor and say, okay, my neighbor has fired, it's triggered, it's working correctly. Okay, now I can go, or, there's a problem somewhere else in the in our systems. We have hundreds of magnetic coils, and all of them have to work. And so, if there's a problem, I need to detect it and compensate for it, and then do that dynamically in real time. And in the simulation, we we didn't know any of those things. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's that's great example. Yeah. One one more thing, maybe a bit tangential to this. You had mentioned earlier working with Princeton on. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but, but let's say working with a non-startup, non-commercial type entity like academia, or even you mentioned working with the DOE, what does that look like uh, for you guys? Like, how do you work together? Um, you know, what's in it for Princeton? Are you, or, like, what, what are those dynamics like? Um, 
so it is interesting because there is, uh, sorry for the electric, uh, electrical engineering lingo, an impedance mismatch sometimes of both speed and uh, scale of money um, and, and, and those kinds of things. Um, but I think uh, startups and, and other companies that are trying to move fast miss out if they don't um, for, for honestly engage and take advantage of the vast wealth of knowledge that we have built in the in the, the the national labs universities it's really important and so how do you do that how do you build that into your startup or into your company with while still moving fast and not expecting i need you know uh, a large amount of money for many years where in a startup company you have a large amount of money and almost no time and you need to move very quickly to prove your next key milestone so that you can go and then iterate and build um, and so how we think about it is is essentially essentially uh, we build things in parallel. And I learned some of these lessons from my time working for the Air Force of you take your high risk programs that are high risk and your low risk of the programs I know I need and you run them both in parallel. And so, for instance, in this case, we're developing a brand new code that's higher fidelity um, that might, if it works out, prove a lot of the, and optimize the fusion reactions. But we also have our existing code that's fast and just works right now well enough. And so we'll we'll build as what we can as fast as we can while putting money and resources and time into future R&D and future advanced technologies that if they work, we put them on generation two and we go. And if they don't work, that's OK, too. We're, we we're still have a viable product moving forward. And so it's a balance of can I build uh, systems around our core, the sort of the core business of Helion to build generators as fast as possible and then use all the wealth of, 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 the, of humankind to make them better. So oh. it's it's that interesting balance. And, and in some ways, to be honest, it's a little bit of isolation. It's a little bit of having that program be able to succeed or fail on its own without impacting the rest of the business. Yeah. So let's assume we get commercial fusion 2028. You have a head start there. But what is like the evolution of the market look like in your mind? How does the rollout go kind of on paper here, at least do you think? Where the lead, it becomes kind of winner take all. You mentioned earlier, it, it might not be, but if not, like, what are the different kind of areas that people will fight over? It's a big question, but what does the market look like once we have commercial fusion? Yeah, there's um, four in the world. There's uh, you know uh, over four thousand gigawatts of installed fossil fuel capacity out there, um, and our goal is to replace it all. And 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 I don't think. A one type of fusion probably is enough to do all that. We're going to try. We're going to move as fast as we can. Um, but I think that you're going to have different kinds of power in different infrastructure in different um, locations, and you're going to need those. Whether it's remote, whether it's military bases, whether it's giant factories, whether it's data centers, and they're going to require different kinds of power. Um, and so our plan is: yes, we demonstrate electrons on the grid in 2028, and then we have to scale and manufacturing as fast as possible and start manufacturing these systems to deploy them. Um, and so we're gonna do that as fast as possible. Our goal is to get to, by 2030, we're now, gener we're now making generators and we're making, we're making um, generators per day rather than generators every few years. Uh, that's a big scale, that's a big lift. Um, and so as a human, I want other, other fusion and other types of advanced you know, carbon-free power out there in the world too, because we just have that big of a need and we need to move that fast. So that, that's my view. Uh, we're gonna move as fast as we can though. And we, we engineer that into the systems uh, you know, behind me here in, in Everett, Washington. We engineer the, the mass manufacturing into the systems right now. 
is there, you know, if, if it's going to be Helion and a couple other approaches, are there some that you think are more dead end or some approaches that you like better? You don't need to name companies, but like, do we like Stellarators more than Tokamax? Do we like Shared Flow more? Like, how do you think about like, what, what can win a piece of the market that you might not be able to as easily? Yeah, I think about, honestly, it, it's the same philosophy that drives us. Uh, I look to companies and technologies that are focused on iterating quickly. Um, if they're going to take five or 10 years to build a machine and demonstrate something, and then another five or 10 years to build a machine and, and demonstrate something else, they're going to be too slow. And so I'm looking at those technologies, small or big, that can iterate quickly. They can build, demonstrate, and move on from prototype to prototype to commercial reality. Um, I also look to ones uh, in the market right now that, that do fusion. I think that that's a pretty, there's... I don't know, 40 or more companies out there in Fusion, but only a few of us actually do Fusion. And so those are the ones that I, I focus on are Fusion companies that are actively doing Fusion and iterating really quickly. Yeah. Well, speaking and of things... And technology, my colleagues are brilliant and exploring all kinds of new technologies. And so I would never say like, that's a good one or that's, a, that's not a good one. So, cool. Good. Speaking of things that might make you move slower or faster, maybe we can talk a little bit about the regulatory environment. What does that look like for Fusion today? And I'm curious if you have you know, been part of helping craft what that regulatory framework should look like. Yeah, I would say uh, regulation around Fusion three or four years ago, I would say was the biggest risk for this technology that we could because regulation at that time, it wasn't clear if Fusion even who would regulate it or how, or, or, or there was no default answer. Um, so it was possible we build working fusion generators and then can't deploy them because there isn't regulation. And, and not to say that the regulation is too hard or too easy, it just didn't exist. Um, and so that was a big risk for the company, uh, for, the tech, for all, all the companies, but also to the technology in general. Um, this year, uh, so we started, and so we started working with the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, a number of years ago. I've given a number of talks at the public meetings. We've been working with the technical staff and the commissioners over the last three, even more years um, to try to figure out where does fusion fit in the regulatory landscape. Um, and our goal was that it fits somewhere. Uh, you know, it mattered more that we fit we fit in the, the the regulations as is and didn't need new ones more than it mattered, you know, exactly where we fit in those regulations. Um, so they they announced the NRC commissioners voted unanimously earlier this year um, to um, that fusion be regulator under what is called Part 30, which is the particle accelerator and hospital parts of the regulatory code for nuclear. What that really means for us is that we're regulated by the state. So the state in Washington, the Department of Health regulates us rather than a federal body. Um, and that's really good for Helion because we've been working with them since 2018. So our previous systems have all been already regulated and licensed, inspected, all of those things. Because we want to make sure that, that, that fusion gets to the world quickly. That's great, but it's got to be safe. It has to be. That's an, that's an a priori requirement. And so our goal is to, to work. And it's really great because we've been working with the state regulator for years. Um, and now we now we have the job of taking not just Washington, but all the rest of the states and having to teach them and teach them around about fusion. And so we're working with the state regulators, all the, the uh, agreement states on how to actually regulate fusion and what it means and how, what's easy about it, what's hard about it and how to do it safely. With that risk not removed, but at least there's some clarity there. 
Mm-hmm. What is the biggest risk that you see to Helion now more than just like, you know, actually producing the thing, but is there like a thing that keeps you up at night right now? Yeah, I mean, we focus on how do we build and iterate quickly. And what that means is getting literally it's getting the parts in the door. Um, and so that's what I focus on. Uh, I'm, I make calls all week long to suppliers, supply chains, yeah, uh, forges, metal forges all over the world of can we accelerate? Can we get our parts in the door? Um, you know, what is ironically, what is the, what's going to set our current currently setting our timeline for our seventh generation system is getting electronics chips in the door to build the system. And that's the requirement more than anything else, not the physics, not the engineering. It's building the, the, the microelectronics that control these big magnet systems. And so that's the driver. And so I spent a lot of time, uh, effort in our team, our, our wonderful supply chain team on how do we do that? So to me, that's the thing that keeps me up at night. Um, so some of the risks that we worry about is the whole model for Helion is that we directly recover electricity efficiently. Well, we better do it efficiently. Um, and so at every step we focus on electrical, electrical efficiency, thermal efficiency, and everything else. And so we need to make sure we can do that. Um, uh, the analogy I would use is it doesn't help if you build the big rocket, but it's too heavy. You've got to build that, that rocket lightweight or it doesn't matter. Wow. Incredible. Should we do the, the last question? I think so. Go for it, Becky. Right, this is, this is a, a softball one that I'm excited to hear your answer about, which is what does the world look like when we have abundant fusion energy? Yeah, I, we, the, uh, the whole team thinks about this a lot. Um, that we believe we have an approach to fusion that can be low cost and generate electricity at a cent a kilowatt hour. Eventually, we want to get there, right? That's that's radically low cost. And what that means is that we can go out and replace fossil fuels. We can go out and stop climate change eventually. Um, but what it also opens up new things. We're looking at um, all, there's many parts of the world that don't have the amount of low cost electricity we do. And so the standard of living throughout the world in India and Africa and Asia, like those are the markets we really want to address. And then the big ones, like our first customer is data centers. We're seeing AI growing at an enormous rate and it's going to need power. And our data center and computer infrastructure um, is going to require massive amounts of power. And we want to be able to support that. We want to be able to support that world. And so that's what we look towards. And we, we look towards what that world could look like when you have massive computing available for everyone in their pocket at home. And, and can we help support that? It's a good thing to be, to be working on. This has been a ton of fun, David. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you very much. It's great. Thanks, David.